Welcome to Makeshift, a Mishbacha podcast examining the shifting trends affecting our community. I'm Sarah Eisman, your host. Welcome to our program today, where we will be discussing shifting trends in language. Our guest today is Rebetzin Yehuda Skolshevsky, who I was honored to meet about, what is it, three years ago that we first met? Sounds right. Through CORE, a program that uh, supports Jewish women who um, support Klal Yisrael. And Yehudas and I met through that program, and it's been literally an honor and a privilege to learn from her. Rebetzin Yehuda Skolshevsky is the founder and director of Shiviti, a women's learning program based in Yerushalayim that offers both in-person classes as well as a distance program. She also serves as a mentor to women in leadership roles in Jewish communities all over the world. And she is a regular contributor to a Parsha column in Bina magazine. We're so uh, delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule and being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. What can I do for you? Yeah, that's your favorite that's question. That's always the answer, right? <laughs> what can I do for you? What can you do for me? So what you can do for me is tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, and your love of language. I know that in our few years that we've known each other, you are precise in language, and language is important to you. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, among the hats that I wear, so one of them is I've worked also as a writer, been a writer and editor for many years. I'm doing less of that work now. So just from the perspective of the need for clear language as a vehicle, a vessel to be able to contain and express thoughts and feelings so they can be conveyed clearly to other people, it's an essential piece of our humanness to be able to communicate the you know endlessness of our thoughts and feelings in packages that are these limited packages, they have to be effective conveyors of all of this largeness that's inside of us. So whether it's through writing or whether it's through speaking, I'm also a public speaker. You know, language is essential there. But I mean, it's bigger than that, right? Yeah. Language is constantly evolving and is the containment and the expression of the deepest part of ourselves and our beliefs. You know, so when we fall into vagueness or imprecision or weakness in language, it's a reflection of having vagueness and fuzziness and weakness in the internal space as well. Yeah. Language really matters. Yes, language matters. It matters. And you're saying it's really an expression, albeit sometimes a constricted expression, of who we are. So I would say it's always a constricted expression. Like from our deeper sources, we always speak of language, whether it's written or spoken, as being what's called a tzimtzum. It's a constructive environment that's necessary for the conveyance of something that's much larger than mere words. So the choices that we make, you know, the complexity of the choices that we make, but how we're going to express ourselves, it's this very subtle and involved process of how we take something as large as our thoughts and our feelings and somehow get it into these little containers called words that are somehow supposed to magically jump the distance, whether it's over the page or whether it's from person to person or over, over some media, doesn't matter. But it's going to jump from one mind and heart to another, that small vessel, and then open on the other end and hopefully convey what it is, this big thing, this big thought, this big feeling that we have inside of us. It's going to have to bridge that gap and get to where it needs to go. Right. And with integrity. Right. So one of the expressions we'll talk about later is I have no words. But sometimes that's really accurate. Sometimes we just don't have words or we can't find the words to really express the bigness that's going on inside. 
Well, doesn't David HaMelech say it? He says, right? Doesn't he say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like, to you, silence is the highest praise? Yeah. It's a, a certain place we go to where we have no more words and silence is the best that we can do. Yeah. Sometimes it's like that. So that being the case, it must be very painful when we see language that's really there to convey huge ideas being minimized and trivialized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's kind of the focus of our conversation today is what are some of the expressions or words that you're seeing bandied around in social media that have maybe lost some of their original intent and certainly some of their impact? Well, first of all, I don't consider myself any kind of a maven of social media because it's not as though I am really on social media all that much. The only best I can do is sort of relay my observations based on conversations that I have with people. Yes. You know, not over social media. And the way that I hear language being used. But um, I'm sorry to interrupt you for one second. Sure. I think that what you're saying is is half of the issue here, which is that whether or not someone is on social media, the use of social media has made these words trickle into people's vocabulary. Yes, absolutely. So even if you're not on it, the people you're talking to are using some of these terms and the impact is felt. Absolutely. It enters into the world of discourse, whether you're using those platforms or not. And I wouldn't want to be in the category of like the, I don't want to say the old fogey, you know, who stands there and says, you know, this word used to mean so much <laughs> and now it doesn't mean anything at all. You think about, I don't know, growing up a, a couple decades ago, you know, oh my goodness, how people originally responded. Do you remember to the overuse and cliched use and how trite the word awesome became? And now it is completely not usable in any significant context, correct? Absolutely. The word awesome, which means like Nora, which is a holy word, right? By the mid 80s, you could no longer use this word in any significant context because it had evolved into this other meaning colloquially, which which rendered it completely devolved, I would say, right? <laughs> devolved. So there are a lot of words, you know, from the history of usage, there's a lot of terminology like that that just gets folded under. And then we sort of have to feel our way around trying to find new terms that express what the old term used to if we can. And sometimes we really can't anymore. So now we might use the word uh, awe-inspiring, but maybe we don't really have so much appreciation anymore for the word awe altogether right. and how much impact the use of the word awesome had, or whether that was just a reflection of something already having been degraded, you know, conceptually, is anyone's guess. I don't know. You know, talk to a philologist or a linguist or someone, but that's a fascinating point. Is the language creating or mirroring the reality? It's both. Yeah. It's kind of like Orwellian newspeak, right? It expresses a reality and it influences reality. And that's always the way of language. So I'm not going to die on the hill of <laughs> awesome. Do you know what I mean? I'm not. <laughs> There's been so many sacrifices since, right? <laughs> exactly. So there are so many. The word great, even. The word gadol, right? The word great no longer has any significant meaning either, even though at some point in the past it did. So this is inevitable, right? Yes. In the nonstop train of language moving, um, living language. So it's inevitable. But what I find interesting is the extent to which what I would call um, therapy speak has penetrated into common discourse and how sometimes there's a great gap between the original context of these terms and the way that they're used in common discourse and 
you know, like my bigger question is, and is it indicative of any greater mental health in the community that people use a lot of therapy speak? Like, does it mean anything? You know, good question. (laughs) So we have a lot of terms like that that get bandied around. And I tend to ask myself that question a lot. You know, the use of certain terms, does it mean that people are actually able to embody these terms or are we just using terms that don't wind up having that much significance. So, yeah, I mean, I I remember when OCD used to be a diagnosis and now it's like an adjective, you know, like, oh, I'm so OCD about that, you know. Yeah. And talk to the people who really suffer from this condition and discover just how unhappy they are. Absolutely. About that kind of terminology being used out of context. There's nothing light about it when you're actually suffering from it. Mm -mm. Yeah. No, not at all. So maybe we could look at some of those words that are being thrown around conversationally. You know, words like trigger. Yeah. Oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a big one for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, trigger. It is a real thing, right? Being triggered. It is a real thing. My, um, you see, again, I don't want to be the old fogey who's, you know, who's standing there on the sidelines and saying, oh, no, 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 that's not my interest. When I'm working with people and I'm trying to help them, let's say they're going through something difficult, they might use this term, you know, uh, what my husband said really triggered me, let's say, in the context of a, you know, a marital issue. I might stop the person that I'm speaking with right there and say, you know, let's think about this word trigger for a second. I know that it's used often and um, I've heard you say it before. So I'm not thrilled about the use of the word trigger. I'll, I'll explain why, because a trigger is a functional piece of a weapon. And when you pull it, it shoots. So the implication in there of the triggering is that There's some stimulus that's coming from outside of me, right? That as soon as it comes into my space, it automatically sets me off. And I don't want to start from the premise that I want to always begin from the premise that even if I am faced with uh, stimuli that are difficult for me to accept, to assimilate, to process, to handle, I don't necessarily have to be reactive. I think that that's a healthy premise to start with, that I am not locked into being a reactive person. (laughs) So the language of triggering, I think that in many contexts it's used and it's probably not beneficial for the person who's using the language. Mm-hmm. That's my take on it. Yeah. Because as soon as I hear the word trigger, that's what I think of. You know, you, sh- you pull on the trigger, something's going to, you know, something's shooting. It assumes a certain level of helplessness or reactivity that without even thinking about it, if you immediately connect to that word, You're putting yourself in that space where the option of self-regulation or self-growth almost doesn't exist. And the whole process is very insidious. I believe so. And so when I Mm -hmm. mention it to people, let's say in the context of conversation, I say, did you ever think about what it means to be triggered? What's the implication of that? We're not conscious. You know, we're often not conscious of the language that we use and the way it affects us. So that's the kind of term I might put a hand up and say, let's think about that term before we make easy use of that term. Let's think about what it implies. Mm -hmm. Because it does affect us. Mm -hmm. I think it does. I think what we find is that many of these words that get bandied about in their pure form are powerful. And the danger that we're seeing here is as they get thrown around casually, they're losing impact and or they're being misused. Yeah, they can get warped. Yeah, we run the risk of them becoming cliched or trite or warped in their meaning. Yes. Mm-hmm. Here's one. I, I have one. I was just thinking about this the other day. The way in which the word sensitive has altered its use. 
it doesn't mean the same thing that it often did. When we would say he's a sensitive person, I would say that generally speaking, that implied that the person is attentive to and attuned to the feelings of other people, the conditions of other people, right? And that's a fairly common, was a fairly common use of the term sensitive. And then when a person says, I'm sensitive, so generally speaking, it's a reflection on their sensitivities as opposed to their capacity for being sensitive to other people. Right. And I think it shifted. I honestly do feel that it shifted a lot. And the emphasis on others used to be more common. And now the use of sensitive is more commonly applied. It's self-referential. So that's just interesting to me. It is. There's a lot of terminology like that. So I give a lot of thought to the word authenticity. You know, what does it mean when someone talks about being their authentic self? And what did that used to mean? Uh, or what does it still mean from a Torah perspective? And how is that being used now? Do you have any thoughts about that word? Authentic self, authenticity. I mean, authenticity, people will use it often as an entree to um, being brutally honest or being, <gasps> that's, you know, they're going for authenticity. Sometimes it means no holds barred. Mm-hmm. And that's what it can mean, which doesn't have to do with authenticity, actually. It's not really authenticity, but it's more like um, I'd like the freedom to be able to, I don't want to use too harsh a word, but, you know, I'd like the freedom to be able to, you know, hit you with whatever it is that I'm feeling strongly about. Yeah, because I think there was a time that we defined authenticity as a resonance with our neshama. You know, that when somebody was uh, expressing their authentic self, it meant digging through some of the layers of, what should we call it? I, I don't like the word Yetzirah, but layers, you know, of sheker or whatever it is that might impact a person. And that when they dug really deep, the real voice of their neshama and the connection to what is is what is true, that was their authentic self. And it feels like sometimes there's been sort of a 180 shift in what somebody is looking for when they say they want to be their authentic self. Well, I mean, the model that we have of the person who strips away all of the trappings whether it comes from society or the family, or we'll say even some kind of uh, inherent character traits that, you know, they seem to be born with. I mean, our our first model of this is Avram Avinu, who's told, like, all this stuff you're going to strip away. Your artziut, your earthiness, and your your moladetcha, the place where you, um, you know, all the stuff that you got inherently from your parents and your family of origin and, you know, Beit Avichol, the stuff you learned in your father's house, all that stuff is like our layers that are obscuring your authentic self. And somewhere in there is a lecha, there's a left lecha, you're going to go to yourself, Abraham, and there's something that is within all of that, that's your true authentic self that has to be discovered, right? So, yeah, I think that the way that authenticity is often used, I think now is a little bit more leaning towards what I had mentioned before, which is like what I'm feeling in the moment or the, what I'm thinking in the moment that I want to just be able to pour out on you. Mm-hmm. That's called authentic mm-hmm. self, not necessarily something that is the product of having gone through this multi-layered process of self-discovery. Mm-hmm. I always get a kick out of, you know, when somebody starts a post with, I'm going to be vulnerable now <laughs> in front of my 12,000 closest friends. Right. Again, there's sort of that feeling of what are we doing to the word when we do that? Almost sensationalizing it, right? Well, because in the context that you're describing, what's happening is actually a kind of curated act of exposure. Mm-hmm. And it's very calculated. And vulnerability doesn't have anything to do with that. So it seems like it's actually the opposite. Exactly. But we have a lot of that. You know, terminology tends to get 
warped all over the place. There was a term that I think it got a little overused and then people got tired of it because I was hearing a lot of it a few years back and now I don't hear it so much anymore. So maybe people realize it was already had stretched beyond people calling themselves empaths. Yeah. Remember this one? Yes. Hearing it less now. But while it was in its heyday, I think it was a sort of people's uh, use of a kind of quasi-mystical attribution of some sort of hypersensitivity to being tuned into other people's, you know, inner state, right? Which affected them strongly. And I think that somehow crept into the language, you know, from some kind of a fantasy or mystical concept that people devise for themselves. Okay, however it got in, it got in. <laughs> this idea of being an empath, I mean, look at that kind of an, a devolution or evolution. The original use of speaking about somebody as an empath means that I'm hyper attuned to other people's, you know, areas of sensitivity, their feelings. And that's an asset because I'm able to then be empathetic and help them navigate through something that's really challenging for them because I have the sort of natural innate attunement to other people's emotional states. The way in which it evolved or devolved, however we're going to talk about it, is like, I'm an empath. I need to absent myself from this situation or this interaction because it's affecting me so strongly that I can't bear it. It's like it's jamming my circuits, you know? Right. Which is very different from the way that the uh, term was, I think, originally intended to be used. And then an overuse of this term as just a person using it to express how hypersensitive they are and how protective they need to be of their own feelings. I think it kind of faded out mm -hmm. and good. <laughs> No loss, right? No loss. It's interesting because there seems to be a theme in a few of these words where the emphasis used to be outward focused and it's really become about, you know, how it affects me. I feel like that's a theme that's come up in a couple of these words. Yeah, but I don't, again, I don't want to be that middle-aged lady on the sidelines <laughs> saying, no, 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 yeah. you know, to Jen, whatever you are. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to be that person. No. But, you know, it's an interesting observation how our terminology, the language that we're using is expressing something that's cultural phenomenon. Yeah. And so changes and alterations are um, expressive of something that is, is pretty deep. I think neither of us wants to be that lady on the side. And yet, I'm sure there are people here listening to this and wondering, what's the difference? Why are we even having this conversation? And I think it's important to talk about it. What difference does it make? When these words get either warped or overused, what's the danger here? Well, we're also being affected. Language is expressive of something and it's also affecting us. So the integration of these concepts, because they're, they're working their way into us, whether we realize it or not, as soon as we start using them. And let's go back to trigger. I mean, I don't like to use that term. And when it's used, and I'm not going to say it triggers me, you know, I don't like it because I feel that it does foster in the internal space of the person who uses the term, this state of hyperreactivity, which is not conducive for them. It's not beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly using terms that are having a profound effect on us without being conscious of the way in which they're affecting us. I was thinking about that when we were discussing vulnerability. If we lose vulnerability in its true sense, if people lose the ability to connect to each other, that I first go through that process of really trusting you, and then I'm able to be vulnerable with you, the entire meaning of relationships gets lost. The entire power of relationships gets lost. You know, if we just go from A to, to H without all those steps in between, and we can just call something vulnerable without earning that right to be vulnerable or that safety to be vulnerable, we've done something huge and not good. To relationships. 
Well, you know, I just, uh, Rev. Yisrael Salanto, I think, would say, you know, there's no, you can't skip madrigot, mm-hmm. right? Levels are like steps, and they're called madrigot because you go from one to the next to the next to the next, and in all spiritual and emotional internal processes, right? You know, there's no elevator. You can't just start at the bottom and then just jump someplace else. We can use terminology. This is what I mentioned at the beginning, is that we could use therapy speak from today till tomorrow, but it doesn't mean that we're necessarily in any better a state mm-hmm. for having used therapy speak. Right. It doesn't mean that we have the capacity to be able to actually carry out or, you know, we, we're writing checks that we can't cash. Mm-hmm. Right. I like that. Good metaphor. Yeah. And we're sometimes hiding behind words, like you said, you know, to do the things we want to do. And we kind of dress them up in, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothes. Is that the expression? Yeah. So that we give ourselves permission. I mean, how many times have you heard someone throw around the word boundary in a way where it was permission to just not stretch themselves? Obviously. And again, this is we always run the danger here because every one of these words in its true sense and in its essence is powerful and meaningful and has an important place. And at the same time, when I think we're seeing some of these words being abused and distorted to fit the needs, you know, so how many times have we seen people use the word boundary when what they really mean is rejection or kind of putting a space that may or may not need to be there, but is more comfortable for them? Well, I mean, how is it used now? Very often people will say, you're violating a boundary. You're violating my boundary. That's the way it's often used now. Mm-hmm. And it's perfectly reasonable for people to have boundaries. Everybody has to have boundaries, right? Boundaries are necessary. When I say to the other person, you know, back off, you're violating a boundary of mine. That's a way of demarcating the area beyond which I don't want the person to make incursions into me, whether it's conversationally or whether it's emotionally, however it is. And you can do that. But I would say in the past, when we were talking about boundaries or saying a person has good boundaries, what did we mean or what um, have we meant when we talk about a person having good boundaries? I think a lot of times it had to do with how they related to other people, right? Yeah, we would say uh, a good capacity for Mm self-restraint. Good boundaries meant not being a person who easily violates other people's boundaries. Exactly, exactly. So we can kind of go back to that theme. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, again, I don't want it to be like as if it's some kind of casting aspersions on however all these terms are being used and whoever's using them, whatever. Right. But it's just interesting to reflect upon the ways in which our use of language is expressing something that's, you know, unique to a certain cultural moment. Right. Right. And to be aware of it, at least. Yeah. You know, we used to make jokes about it. You know, that was the old joke is like, you know, the snacks, right, is, uh, you know, kishala, tegla, right? which is all, even though it's a multiple in Yiddish, it's more like laugh is like, it's for you, right? It's a multiple because it's for you because I'm sharing mm-hmm. with you. And then we became the me generation and it's like Bisley, Kinley, you know, <laughs> everything, Lee, Lee, Lee. Uh-huh. It's all about me. And that's something that people have been talking about forever, right? Right. And it, we could join the long line of people decrying, like, but Shalom Melch said, now, don't say that in earlier generations it was better. You know, that's what Shalom Melch says in Kohelis. Mm-hmm. Don't say that in earlier generations it was better. You know, because that's not true. It's, that's not the way it works. Because every generation has its own stuff. Absolutely. So the language is just expressive of whatever is happening in the moment. So we observe it and we look at it and we say, what does this mean? What does it mean to me? You know, do I want to participate in this use of language? Is this something that's working for me? Is it something that's working against me? Is this really what I mean to say? Yeah. Is this really what I mean to say? Yeah. I think the point that we're making today is that it's not about judging the language. It's about actually being mindful. 
and recognizing what it meant in its pure form, which is important and significant. I mean, you know, God forbid, I'm not advocating that we don't have boundaries. Some of my best friends have boundaries, right? (laughs) We definitely can appreciate the value of boundaries. And at the same time, recognize that the words are not necessarily being used in the context that they were intended. And I think if we could bring, shine a light on that and just bring some mindfulness, when we're using those words, what do we mean? And do we mean what we're saying and what the words have um, have come to mean? I wanted to share with whoever's listening something so beautiful that I heard from you recently about one of the other terms that gets thrown around a lot is holding space. Oh, yeah. And I know that that's a term that you wouldn't necessarily choose to use, but can you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you're with someone and you're quote unquote holding space for them? It's interesting. So holding space now in, you know, in this cultural moment, people use it in all kinds of very, I think, very strange ways. Like we'll say someone is going through something difficult or challenging in their life and another person has heard about it. So they may send them a text or a little note or something, again, via social media, that's very often the way it goes, holding space for you. Like, meaning what exactly? What is meant by that? So I feel like it's a kind of um, non-sectarian way of saying, like, praying for you, you know? Like, mm-hmm. whether the person is really praying for you or not praying for you is irrelevant. It's more like, okay, I hear you going through something difficult. I'm at a distance from you, right? Sort of, I'm thinking of you. I'm empathetic. But it also is used as a way of sending a message of empathy without actually doing all that much showing up. That's sometimes the way it's used. And I don't think that that's really what it means at all. I mean, in actuality, to hold space for someone is quite a challenging exercise in creating an environment where another person can share something that is challenging for them to share and can be actually very challenging for you to hear. And that you're able to stay present with them in those moments where they are sharing whatever they need to share and you are able to remain with them unjudgmental, Mm non-judgmental, non-reactive. And that is, I would say, like in a more therapeutic context, that's what we would call holding space. Now, if we're going to think about what that entails, what that demands of us, that actually requires quite a high level of spiritual and emotional maturity to be able to do this for another person. Because it's not only that what they're sharing is challenging for them to share, it's also challenging for me to hear. So by giving this for them this reassurance of I am holding space for you, it's like I'm entering into a commitment to just contain what they need to share without judgment or reaction. It's very difficult. It actually is quite demanding. And so to use the terminology of holding space without actually doing the work of holding space, I think is an unfair use of the term. Yeah. If only then it's not conveying what it was originally intended to convey, it's also conveying something that's actually meaningless. Yes. I so appreciate this last example as we wrap up, because I think you really hit the nail on the head. Let's give these words the value and the respect that they deserve by doing what it takes to actually embody them and not cheapen them by just throwing them around. I so appreciate your time and your insights on this topic, and I really hope that this does bring awareness as as we use these words. Thank you so much for being with us today, Robinson Golshevsky. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me along. Thank you for listening to Makeshift. Enjoy this episode. Share it with your friends. 
Have a comment to share about this episode, a topic you'd like to discuss, or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at familyfirst@mishpacha.com or at mishpacha.com slash makeshift, where you can also subscribe to receive updates and new episodes. This episode was produced by JAG in Detroit Podcasts. Makeshift, a Mishpacha podcast.